James Gorman, dog lover and science writer for the New York Times, has written about everything from the invention of flea collars to the nature of consciousness. But it was a recent piece called How Old Is My Maltese Really? that caught my attention. Hello, I'm James Jacobson, and today on The Long Leash, we delve into the life and writings of the science reporter, author, and narrator who has just retired after almost three decades at the New York Times. James Gorman is the author of books on hypochondria and penguins and dinosaurs in the ocean around Antarctica. He writes about animals and viruses, archaeology, and the evolution of dogs, and he's also taught science writing at New York University, Fordham University, and as part of a Stanford University online program. In this conversation, though, we take a deep dive into many of the articles over the years, including his most recent one that caught my attention, How Old Is the Maltese Really? He also lifts the lid on his approach to telling fascinating science stories and shares his thoughts around the science and reporting on the COVID pandemic. James Gorman, thanks for being with us today. I'm delighted. So a few days ago, after a long day at work, I went upstairs, you know, because it was a very short commute, as we all know these days, and to have a glass of wine and to sit and read the newspaper with my beloved Maltese. And I opened up my favorite newspaper, the New York Times. And what is the first thing that calls my attention is a story that you wrote called how old is the Maltese really? And I'm like, oh, this is going to be beautiful that you're going to talk about the <laughs> 2000 plus year legacy of right. this breed right. and how special they are. But you dashed my hopes. Oh, no. Oh, well, the, the breed is still just as wonderful as it, it always was. This, as you know, if you read it, this uh, inspiration for this was a, a friend of mine, a Maltese friend, a dog. I love that. <laughs> who is also lives with a human friend of mine. And so tell us what you discovered, because I've been a big fan of your writing at the Times for so long, because you write about such interesting subjects that often entail dogs and cats and animals and, and interesting science. And we'll get into that. But tell us, for those who haven't read the piece, what you discovered. Well, I talk with this friend of mine often, and she, she often tells me about the person, said, not the dog. The person, yeah. Well, no, I talk with the dog, too, <laughs> but only I know what the dog says. Mm. I can't. Uh, but, yeah, my friend, the owner of the Maltese, and she often talks about the long and storied history going back to the Greeks, perhaps the Egyptians. Aristotle had comments on it, and all of this is true. There was a dog that people called the Maltese, and it looks very much like the dog we have now. And they were lap dogs, and they were loving, and roughly the same size. And people like to think, well... My Maltese has a direct, you know, kind of genetic connection. The way people like to think I'm descended from William the Conqueror. <laughs> well, my Maltese is descended from Aristotle's Maltese. And that's where things get a little sticky. There's no question that there were very similar dogs, uh, sort of a breed type, and that people have been loving them for thousands of years. But if you look at the DNA, and I report a lot on the evolution of dogs and how they compare the DNA of this breed to an ancient wolf and so on. And what they say is, well, you really can't make a definite connection. You know, the idea of a breed nowadays is 
okay, and it's recognized by the AKC and all the members of the breed are written down. We have stud books and now we have embarked DNA. We can test them and everything. Uh, so that kind of specificity and that idea that they have a closed system where we breed these dogs and they all fit in a neat little box, that's brand new in the evolutionary sense. It's a few hundred years old, basically the Victorians. So let's talk about that. So you discussed that it was basically 200 years ago and it started in Great Britain. Right. Essentially, people decided uh, that there was this, uh, this frenzy in the Victorian era to create new breeds. And um, they set up stud books. They set up registries. They said, you know, if you're going to be a member of this breed, you have to trace your pedigree. It's very similar to the Book of Peerage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I suppose it's no coincidence that it happened in Victorian England. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it, there's an interest in, I mean, people now talk about uh, the royal pedigree of certain uh, you know, social media stars, for instance. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of similar with the dogs. And uh, look, everybody likes to think that their dogs are special. I've had Cairn Terriers and Mutts and Pomeranians, and I read all about the history of them. And I like to think they go back and they have this one. In fact, until, I don't know if it's still the case, but the AKC used to say for Cairn Terriers that honorable scars should not disqualify them. I don't mm. know what the definition of honorable is, but I always, well. I always liked that, and I was very <laughs> proud of it. Yeah. So, well, you've dashed my, because I have often invoked Aristotle's name when talking about my Maltese, because, well, you know, <clears throat> that's what I thought. But you point out that, yeah, it was a little white dog, but it may have only been a ghost of what we would think of as a Maltese today. Right. I bet that if you took that dog and you compared it to your Maltese, they wouldn't be that different. You know, they'd both be loving little white dogs. So if that's what you're thinking of, then sure. But if you want to distinguish your Maltese from the Havanese and the Bichon and say, you know, my Maltese goes back to Aristotle, but forget those Havanese, uh, then, then you're in a little trouble. If what you want is to say, there's a long and storied tradition of people breeding these lovely dogs, and I've got one of them, and certainly in some way he or she is connected to the past. You're fine. All right. But it's really for our own peace of mind or storytelling that it matters. But there's an awfully big business, not just about Maltese, but, you know, the whole AKC and purebred shows. What, what are the consequences of this? Well, many other people have written about this a lot. You know, I think there have been some good books on the, or articles, and I think at least one book on the bulldog. Mm -hmm. And you end up with some dogs that uh, that can't breathe. You know, there's this... They need to be uh, born through cesarean section. And, uh, uh, yeah. So what happened with modern breeding is that people started to breed to aesthetic and physical specifications. In the past, they said, well, I want a lovely little dog to sit on my lap. <laughs> and people over on the island of Malta have them. But if I see another lovely little dog that comes from Greece, I'll breed with that. Mm -hmm. But we want them to be nice and loving and many other things. Now, the specifications for the AKC are strictly physical. And people who do dog DNA studies, like the company I mentioned, Embark, one of the big ones, they found that the inbreeding coefficient, if you have 
dogs that are very inbred, you really have a bigger risk of disease. So one of the risks is disease. Mm -hmm. And I think the other risk, in my view, is to the way we imagine dogs. Talk about that. You know, dogs are persons, (laughs) I think. They're not human, but they're they're a different sort of person. And uh, if we love them, we don't really imagine them as, as perfect bodies. We imagine them as beings that we relate to and we value all sorts of things about them. And I think so there's a little bit, uh, well, not a little bit, but I do think there's a risk of concentrating on on the coat and the way the ears are and the, the way the tail and the gait and so on. I mean, do you look at your Maltese and say, you know, are you just the right measure? Would, would you win <laughs> best in show? Or no. do you look at the Maltese and say, ah, love of my life? <laughs> yes, it's the latter and, and purely pet grade. And uh, it was certainly yeah. not quaffed in a fashion that anyone would appreciate right. other than like low maintenance puppy cut. Right, exactly. And I've just had a proclivity for the breed. We rescue dogs. I mean, we, we do all sorts of things, obviously. I mean, I, I run a little company called Dog Podcast Network. So we love all dogs, but I've always liked the Maltese. And I have always had this like absurd thing, which you have dashed my hopes of when I was drinking <laughs> my Sancerre, that, um, <clears throat> that uh, my Maltese is maybe not as ancient as I thought. One of the things you talk about is that just as with human beings, it's like you have 52 cards and you keep splitting them generation after generation. Can you explain that? Absolutely. Sure. You know, people like to trace themselves back to, for instance, William the Conqueror. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a Harvard geneticist who wrote a wonderful book. His name is David Reich about uh, where we came from, what we can know from ancient and modern DNA. And he points out that there are now about 14 million people who were direct descendants of William the Conqueror, and most of them have zero chance of having any of William the Conqueror's DNA. <laughs> and this applies to dogs as well. And the reason that is, is that you've got the mother's and the father's genes, like each has a deck of 52 cards, right? Mm-hmm. And when they reproduce and you form the egg, the chromosomes, everything's shuffled, but you still end up with 52. It's always 52 cards. So every time, you know, a puppy is born or a person is born, you've reshuffled the deck and some cards get lost and there's a new reshuffling. So if you go back a thousand years, this reshuffling has occurred so many times, there are probably none of the original cards left. So not only is my Maltese not from Aristotle, but I'm not (laughs) part of William the Conqueror's heritage. No, but I'm part of Genghis Khan. (laughs) No, that's another silly... um, you know, you may, in fact, carry a, a gene, and you can trace it historically. Mm-hmm. But um, if you just look at the odds, there's so much reshuffling going on. This is is really about pedigree, writing down things, and wanting to have some attachment to the past. I mean, for instance, I'm, uh, by background, my ethnicity is Irish. Uh, my mother was, you know, a fanatical Irish person, one of those people who would wear green every day. And so if you look back genetically, all the people in Ireland pretty much about 9,000 years ago, I think it was, I may have my dates wrong, but, you know, Europe was pretty much the people in Europe. There was a big migration of people from Anatolia in Turkey Mm -hmm. and uh, their sort of genetics and DNA dominate modern Europeans, including modern Irish. So, you know, if I had told my poor mother uh, when she was alive that we were actually (laughs) Turkish, I don't think she would have reacted. (laughs) And in fact, there were later migrations, the Danes, the this, the that. And I'm sure people who are proud of being Turkish, they have a migration from somewhere else. 
so if you look at the past reshuffling, I mean, the message I take from it is this, this, you know, all dogs are just as old as all other dogs. You pick the breeds you like and the dogs you like, but um, let's not get too wrapped up in these ancient pedigrees and lineages. That makes sense. I know that you mentioned geneticists and you were talking about the one at Harvard who studies humans, but what was surprising to me is that you were able to reach out to the National Institutes of Health and talk to not just one, but two geneticists at NIH who focus on dogs. Yes. The reason that they're at NIH and they can do this is that dogs are a wonderful model for uh, many diseases, diseases that human beings have. I mean, they're starting to become very important in looking at aging because sadly, as most of us know, dogs don't live as long as we do. But that means that you can study how diseases are inherited and you can find some, they suffer from some things that we have, diabetes, arthritis, other things. Mm -hmm. And so you can look at how things are passed on and what the genetics of those diseases are. And that's why they're at the National Institutes of Health. Now, they also happen to be dog fanatics, dog lovers, and dog owners. And they do a lot of the breed studies as basic science that's not directly related to, to cancer, but forms a kind of foundation of knowledge. They got a pretty good gig. They were able to yeah. marry those two loves. One of them who I talked to, Elaine Ostrander, has uh, border collies. And she told me, we were talking about whether getting a certain breed really predicts the behavior and the personality of that breed. And, um, you know, yes and no. You're very unlikely to get a Maltese who's uh, standoffish <laughs> and doesn't want to go anywhere near you, likes to be left alone. Mm -hmm. That's pretty unlikely. But she got the equivalent. She went to a farm where people raised these terrific border collies. She looked at the parents. She watched them do the field trials. Every other puppy in the litter turned out to be really smart. And she got what she describes as the dumbest border collie in the history of border collies. It took her six months to teach it to go outside, she said. I'm sure she's exaggerating a little bit. But the point is, she loved the dog, you know, as you do. You have a member of your family, you love it. But her idea had been to do as much research as possible, get as close as she could to the best likelihood of getting a really smart dog. You know, we know what border collies, their reputation is. Right. And she got a lovable, dumb dog. <laughs> Wow. So you just never know. Well, you've written, um, we'll talk about some of your other articles because you are now leaving the New York Times as your full-time job, right? Right. You've been there since the 1993? Yes. Yep. That's right. And so let's go look back on some of the articles that you have written about dogs and animals mm -hmm. over the years that you've really enjoyed. You have written about dog intelligence. Yes. <laughs> I've had I've had a lot of fun with that. There are a couple of stories that stand out there for me. One of them was comparing wolves to dogs in terms of cooperation. Mm -hmm. And you would think that dogs are so sort of cooperative that they would score better. But in fact, wolves score much better. There's a task where both animals have to pull something at the same time. It's kind of a gadget setup. Wolves do it very well. Dogs, they go up there and they're, huh, what? <laughs> they, a lot of them turn around to look at their owners like, hello, hello, do you have a treat? Can you open this for me? So that's, that's one of the stories I liked. I mean, another uh, story that has been ongoing is these dogs like Rico and some others that can learn 
just numerous words. And uh, they know more words than I do. I mean, and uh, I forget what the actual number is, the 300, 1,000 that they've That's gone up to. Yeah. And the, the owners can say, go get the blue, you know, bone. <laughs> And they'll go into a room with a lot of other things and they'll bring back the blue bone. And then they can push the little buttons and yeah. also speak, yeah. Yeah, it's just remarkable. On the other hand, there's a lot of talk about intelligence being kind of, and cognitive ability being central to why humans and dogs are together. Mm. And that's like Brian Hare is very strong on that. There's another dog scientist I wrote about, um, Clive Wynn, who wrote a book called Dog is Love, and his contention is it's dogs' emotional ability that makes them stars. They have this ability to develop close associations with not just humans, but many other kinds of animals. If you raise a dog with sheep, they'll, you know, hey, like I'm with the sheep. (laughs) That's my family. That's partly their superpower, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And we equate that as intelligence, and I guess it is in and of itself a type of emotional intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, but I think, again, I mean, I have, I've never had a really smart dog. <laughs> I've had dogs that were smarter than me. <laughs> That's a low bar. You know? uh, but I've never had one of these brilliant dogs. And in fact, I was once thinking of writing a book called uh, Why Lucky Can't Read. <laughs> it was, was my first, you know, if dogs are so smart, like, <laughs> but you know, there certainly dogs can be pretty smart. They can do lots of things. But is that really, are they that much smarter than, than some other animals? Or is it really that they, um, they just, they love us so much? And you've done other shows on this, I know, but there doesn't seem to me to be much question that they do. I mean, if people love people, dogs love people. <laughs> yeah, there's some new research out of uh, Austria where the scientists were trying to figure out, like, do they really love us back or do they think of us as food providers, and of course, in a typical science way, which I will get into Mm. with you in a bit, in a typical science way, they go, oh, we need to consider this more. But there's really good evidence of that. The guy, Greg, uh, his last name is, uh, I'm losing it right now, but he's in Atlanta and he trained dogs to go into an MRI Mm. and he looked at what set off their pleasure centers. And for some dogs, it was more the presence of the owner than it was the presence of food. I mean, mm-hmm. better than a hot dog treat. So I'll settle for that. Well, I'm going to go back to the Maltese. Our Maltese loves to eye gaze, especially at my wife. So ah. she just will just like sit and stare with the most loving, adoring eyes, which of course yeah. means that's because she, you know, descended from Aristotle's dog. Yeah, that's right. That's what right. are some other favorites that you recall from your long career of writing about all sorts of things, but really about some of these really cool animals? One of the best was I went to a couple places where they raised captive wolves and they were trying to figure out the difference between wolves and dogs in terms of uh, their development. You know, if you looked at the at the DNA of uh, a gray wolf, a modern gray wolf and a Maltese, there, there would be very little difference. And yet there's a world of difference. So and even from a dog that you would think of as, a, a you know, as more wolfy, like a I don't know, a husky or a German shepherd or something. There's just a vast difference between a wolf and a dog. And I've been in, in enclosures with adult wolves and their, um, their heads are huge, which is one thing that's really kind of... Probably more space for the brain. 
I, I guess so. And the Jaws. And the Jaws, the and the jaws, are, the, the jaws go with that, too. Uh, but you, you get a different feeling than you do with a dog, I have to say, even though these are wolves that are habituated to people, and they're friendly enough. And I've also met standoffish dogs that are not, you know, they'll come and sniff you. They're not that interested. But the wolves are very different. But the, the most fun part of this story was that I, I got to spend time with puppies, wolf puppies, mm. from the age of just a couple weeks on up to a few months and see how people habituate them to being with people and um, sleeping with them 24 hours a day and um, then testing them to see their reactions to novel objects. One of the ideas was that there might be a difference in timing in terms of when wolves and dogs, they, they think there is a difference in timing, when they start to be afraid of strange things. It's similar with babies. Babies have something like that too. They didn't come up with any conclusions, but I got to spend a lot of time with wolves. So <laughs> that, that, was, uh, that was one of my favorites. We're going to take a break right here, but we will be right back with James Gorman. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpuff. The green, grassy, beef liver spike smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpuff, traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. It helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I wouldn't have it any other way. I want my Everpuff. It just makes me feel good. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup, every day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Long Leash with science journalist and dog lover James Gorman. Now, James, how do you choose your stories and cover them in a way that you know is so accessible to the public? So my preferred way for choosing the stories, which worked until the pandemic hit, is to look for something that interests me mm-hmm. and then dig into it and figure that if I'm interested enough and I find out enough and I can tell the story, other people will be interested. And that worked pretty well until um, COVID, where it was essentially all hands on deck. I mean, it's a worldwide emergency and that's more just, okay, what's new? We got to chase it down. Uh, 
But the other way is is what I really prefer to do. And my goal usually is to to get people to understand, you know, how science works, that it's not a collection of answers. It's a way that people try to figure out things. And it's always changing. And it, it's limited in, in what it can figure out. But the clues that it finds and the process, the, the sort of the pursuit of those answers is really interesting. So like when I talk to students, I think one of the ways to get people interested is to bring in the people who do it. You know, if you write profiles about scientists or, for instance, Clive Wynn, who wrote the Dog is Love book. I mean, I did a profile of him and he has a, a dog <laughs> that loves him and he loves. So we included the dog in the profile and photos of the dog and I met the dog. And so it's to kind of personalize it. Sometimes I write it in a, in a sort of essay way where I'm talking about what strikes me as odd or funny or throw in a little humor. I mean, the intellectual pursuit is in there. And the way people figure things out is in there. But you have to have a little entertainment as well, if that's your goal. I mean, I did videos for about five years, a thing called Science Take. And we would do videos essentially on anything that was visual that scientists were doing in the lab. One of the things I loved about that is that what you saw, you saw actual scientists working with a little soft robot in sand to see if it could slither like a snake. And then you'd see the snake in the sand slithering along and you see how they had to put it in, how they had to put it together and you get an idea. Okay, so that's what goes on. They did this and then they saw how it worked and then they said, well, okay, this is what we can say from that. Rather than just the way scientific papers are written, which is, you know, the coefficient of slithering <laughs> or slytherin is, <laughs> you know, is, uh, is 9.56 and we, you know, then your eyes just, okay. That's it. I can't read that. So how much time do you spend when you construct a piece to figure out clever ways of making it interesting, of explaining dry science? Is that a considerable part of your decision of what to cover? It is when I'm picking my own stories, which has mostly been the case. Yeah. I wouldn't think I spend a lot of time figuring out how to make it interesting. I kind of let my own interest carry me along. I, it's more like being willing to be a little loose with the writing, not write in a normal, you know, news story to, to have a little fun. Vertipyramid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I once wrote a story about, I, I've, since I recently retired, I was saying, you know, things like in, to my colleagues, what my favorite lead that I ever wrote was. And I was saying, jump, little maggot, jump. <laughs> was one of the things that I loved getting in the times. And it was about how high certain insect larvae could jump. And it was, you know, the science is kind of dry. But I mean, one of the things that makes it fun is that it's been sort of a perpetual undergraduate life being a, the kind of science writer that I've been, where you call people up. And I have... Uh, I've gotten a little tired of reporting about COVID and I've gotten a little bit tired of daily journalism, but I've never gotten tired of new scientific findings that strike me as cool. One of the people that I interviewed told me regularly about uh, science and the evolution of dogs and where they originally came from and when. He studies all sorts of ancient DNA and domestication. And he told me recently, I talked to him, he said, we solved the chicken. <laughs> and that's coming out soon. It's fantastic. We solved the chicken. 
I thought, great, this is fantastic. I'm going to love this story. Uh, so I kind of, you know, if it appeals to me, there are really two things you look at for science stories. One, if it looks like fun and it's interesting and it's going to attract people. The other is if it's important, you know. You know, I wrote about experimentation on chimpanzees, and that was not because it was fun, because it was really important, both in terms of the chimpanzees themselves and their treatment, but also in terms of how we think about what it means to be human and how we're connected to other animals. You know, that, that seems really significant to me. I mean, the dog and domestication stuff has that side too. I mean, who are we and how do we get together with other animals? How does that actually happen? Do we have any idea? But it, that's really most for pure sort of intellectual fun, you know, thinking about it fun. The chimpanzees, that was really about uh, a serious, you know, experimentation on animals and the various attitudes toward it and how the animals are treated. That's all really significant stuff that we we all have to grapple with. And the chicken story, no doubt, is going to win a Pulitzer. Oh, absolutely. If you can break that. So, <laughs> absolutely. Other than like, you know, talking to the scientists, do you pour through tons of scientific journals? Yeah. Basically, there, well, there are kind of five or six scientific journals that I tend to look at, and they send out, you know, news of what they think their most important stories are to all science journalists, you know, roughly a week or two ahead of time. So, I look through all that. And uh, there's a lovely thing called Google Scholar. Mm -hmm. I love it. Scholar.google.com. Absolutely. And if something strikes your interest, like you think, you know, why are there so many chipmunks this year? You, know, you can go <laughs> and you can go chipmunk population, rodent population, uh, just recent year, last six months, and you find the most interesting papers. So... That's essentially how I do it. And then the people that I've, you know, interviewed over the years, they'll tell me when they have something coming up. So there are certain people that do the kind of research that I'm really interested in, and I try to follow them and keep in touch with them. So let's talk a little bit about COVID and the role of scientific journalism mm -hmm. and discussion. That is, you know, there's a lot more in-depth coverage from all sorts of people on science these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, what are your thoughts about that? You said you're a little tired of it. Well, one of the things that happened was that I'm used to reporting on science, and scientists are not like the noblest human beings in the world. They have all the flaws of other human beings, and science is not an absolutely pure profession. But the general, I mean, science is a little bit like democracy. You know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> messy. It's terrible, but it's better than all the others. Right. I mean, it's a good way to figure things out. And most of the people who are working scientists, their goal, is really to figure things out. They may have rivalries and they may, you know, occasionally push their own point of view harder, but, but basically that's their interest. And when they tell you something, um, I don't think I've ever had a scientist outright lie to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that happens. I'm not saying, but you know, if I'm calling up and interviewing them about a paper they've done or a paper somebody else has done, their general interest is in getting the right answer. You know, with COVID, I mean, I started writing about the animal side of it about bats and how it seemed to have originated in bats, about which animals could catch it. I wrote a lot about mink, about our pets, cats and dogs. And I think you wrote a story in February of 20 about the pangolin. The pangolin, yeah, the initial. Which one. was before, I mean, this was in February of 20. Right, 
there was an initial idea that it was yeah. that people were thinking the pangolin could have been uh-huh. an intermediary, and now they generally think probably not, although could have been still. You know, uh-huh. it's it's uh, again <laughs> that's a problem. I mean, but I was used to interviewing scientists mostly. Uh, in the case of the chimpanzees, you got a little bit into politics. But once you get into sort of intelligence, international politics, uh, you know, feelings about China, uh, biosecurity, you deal with a whole different group of people and they have a whole different approach. The reporting is done differently. The way they talk is done differently. And you're, you're trying to sort out, there's a whole mixture of points of view. And there are no documents to refer to. With science, there may be a lot of different points of view, but I can read the paper myself usually, or the papers. Mm-hmm. And I know I don't, I couldn't do the science. I don't understand every bit, but I know enough to what questions to ask. And uh, with this, there were people ranging from scurrilous to highly with great integrity with many different points of view. And uh, they were pushing various agendas and sorting through that has truly been, you know, exhausting. And also the stakes are really high. I haven't dealt with the treatment of it or the vaccine where you have immediate stakes, but in terms of how pandemics arise and where we want to spend our research money and our attention for the future, I think there are a couple of different legitimate points of view. And one is that we need to know as much about viruses out there as possible. So we have to go out and find where they are and look at them in the lab. And another point of view is we need to be really careful about what we bring into the lab, you know, Hmm. because lab accidents have happened. And if we bring in this stuff, who knows? So we need to do less of that kind of study of potentially dangerous viruses. And on the other side is we need to do more highly restricted, but we need to do more. But there is a there's a legitimate divide there. There are people with different points of view, and the unfortunate thing is that since the beginning there has been very little new information. China has, you know, and this is political, uh, has just mm-hmm. not provided the information that people want. Either because the WHO went in there right. and they came out with their report and it's been quiet since. Right. And the WHO report, even the WHO said, well, we really didn't get anything. You know, it wasn't an investigation. It was just a, a study. And the WHO, you know, people attack the WHO all the time, but it's a little bit of that is because all the different nations say, okay, let's give money to the WHO. Let's have them do the studies. And if there's anything wrong, we can blame the WHO. (laughs) (laughs) So they'll all vote in an assembly to say, yes, this is the way to proceed. Then the WHO goes ahead and does it. And they say, wait, wait, this report didn't show us anything. So not to say that the WHO doesn't have problems. Uh, You know, it certainly does. And that report was certainly flawed. But in terms of, you know, there's good genetic and genomic evidence that this came from a bat originally. There's no kind of solid evidence, and and really it seems unlikely to the people that I talked to that there was any, certainly any purposeful manipulation Mm -hmm. of a virus to create COVID-19. Accidentally, the scientists who study viruses closely say, no, uh, it really is just so unlikely. 
And other people say, well, yes, it could have happened. It could have happened. The problem is if you have a limited amount of information and you're talking about likelihood, then your estimates of whether things are likely or not likely are going to be as weak as the amount of information you have. So there we are. Did a virus somehow come in through a bat or something, the original virus, to a Chinese lab? Well, you can't prove that that didn't happen. Maybe. I mean, and yet the news cycle wants something new. And what you have new each week, each month, at times each day, is essentially posturing for um, one position or the other. Well, let's talk a little bit about the news cycle and the reportage of a lot of this. You know, as we said, you've been doing this since 1993, but there are a lot of freshly minted people out there with bylines and on television and radio and on the internet who don't have as deep understanding of science, but are communicating science. What are your thoughts about that? Um, some of the people, uh, sort of the new reporters and people out there are terrific. You know, I see, I mean, like people who write for The Atlantic and uh, many of other places, a lot of them are, are new reporters, young. And uh, I think that really the, the business of science writing, you know, when I started out, a lot of people had degrees in English literature like me. <laughs> and they, <laughs> you can write, yeah, your beat is right. science. And they, uh, so I'll figure out the science now. A lot of the people can write terrifically and have, like Katie Wu at The Atlantic, uh, have fantastic advanced degrees as well. I mean, it, it's a, there's really a much higher level of expertise at the top levels and of writing, you know, The New Yorker, Atlantic, places like that. I can't say that I've seen a lot of the reporting on TV, so I can't really, uh, I can't really respond to that. I mean, I think I know that there's been a lot of downright misinformation, and I've seen it on some outlets. Mm -hmm. I know that, uh, I think, well, Rachel Maddow has some understanding of the sort of, uh, she has a very strong point of view, but I think she's been accurate in her coverage. I think Fox has been <laughs> less accurate, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't seen as, as much of the sort of local television or radio that you may be talking about. So I, I can't really comment on that. So when you see people like Anthony Fauci mm -hmm. vilified and also celebrated, how do you reconcile that? Uh, I think as soon as I see someone celebrated, I think they're toast. Because <laughs> ah, <laughs> you know? we like to build them up and tear them down. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because the expectations are suddenly ridiculous. You know, I mean, my colleagues and I have been interviewing Fauci and his colleagues for, you know, decades and you can go back to AIDS. They've had mistakes, they've had successes, mm -hmm. they've done great stuff, but they're scientists. And, you know, as soon as anybody becomes an oracle or a prophet and they say, whatever Fauci says, that's trouble. Because, it, you know, science is a kind of stumble through the, <laughs> through the darkness with a new virus. I think, mm -hmm. I mean, I think really this has been a triumph in terms of creating this vaccine in time. And it's an indication of how far research has come and the ability to understand what viruses do, how they work, the creation of mRNA vaccine. I mean, this is a, an amazing triumph. And yet people are scared, furious, angry. I mean, some of the best reporting, and I can't name names, but uh, has been about the historical fact that every epidemic, every pandemic has been this way. Mm -hmm. People have been 
scared of science. They've been angry at it. They've been terrified of the disease, but terrified of uh, what was offered in its stead. I mean, smallpox vaccinations, all sorts of, you know, like the polio seems to be the one exception. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid, everybody just said, okay, polio vaccine, fine. Give it to me. I want to go swimming. Yeah, right. Who are some of the science journalists that you look up to that you respect? Uh, well, Carl Zimmer is somebody that I work with, and he's kind of the uh, he's kind of the gold standard in terms of knowing you know everything about science. I think some of the new people at the Times, like a poor Vili and really all my colleagues at the Times, but that that's self special pleading. I won't do that. I think mm-hmm. uh, Ed Wong at the Atlantic and Katie Wu are terrific. Uh, you know, Carolyn Corman at the New Yorker Daily has been doing very well. Michael Spector, you know, I think they're they're all over the place. We talked a little bit about scholar.google.com, but a lot of uh, people are using Dr. Google. They're just Googling things and getting all sorts of results. What are your thought about, you know, the average person going and, quote unquote, doing their own research and not having the filter of a reporter or journalist? I've been talking to scientists about this. The lack of trust in authority has undermined all expertise. And some experts are actually experts. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so Anthony Fauci does know what he's talking about with with epidemiology. You know, I wouldn't go to him for basketball predictions. But, you know, he's been doing this his whole life. You know, he has an understanding of it. But there's a lack of trust and the roots of this, I mean, I've been asking scientists what, you know, science has just gotten swept up in this, I think. Mm. And the roots are in all sorts of politics and, uh, you know, divisions in the world that are really way beyond anything I know what to do about. But I've been talking to scientists and I want to write something to ask them, well, so even though it's not really science, it's happening to everybody and even though scientists have been trying to, to get their point across, what can be done to get people to understand how science works and that, that it's basically a, a legitimate, worthwhile system? Scientists attack the results of other scientists. It's not perfect. It's not you know completely self-correcting, but it, it works well. And you can figure out who the authorities are. And you can also figure out uh, by looking at people who write about it, whether they're telling you the truth, whether they're providing you with legitimate facts. How can you get that point across? Um, I don't have any good answers yet. I mean, everybody blames social media and the Facebook algorithms because they push people toward the extremes. But Mm -hmm. um, education is involved. I don't have the answer, but the complete lack of trust that some people have in any of the sort of traditional systems of knowledge, I mean, if, if that keeps going... We're toast. I mean, what, I, I don't know what the, I, I really, uh, I'm at a loss. What's next for you as you retire from the Times? Well, the main thing I'm going to do, I've often tried to write with a sense of humor mm-hmm. and uh, have fun. Including dashing my hopes about Maltese yes. heritage. Yes. At least it was humorous while I, I tried I read to that. do it gently and throw in Thank a few. You. <laughs> a few jokes along the way. Uh, so I hope to do more of that. That's kind of what I, what I love most is writing about fascinating bits of science and, and uh, sort of taking an, an odd and quirky point of view. So I think I'm going to try and do more of that and less of the heavy-duty stuff. I mean, it's, it's very useful, but there are many, many good 
young reporters who are willing to jump into the fire pit. And uh, I say more power to them and they have the energy and, uh, and they really, they should be doing that. I mean, people have to do that, but I've done it for a while. I don't have to anymore. <laughs> I'm going to write some, some fun stuff. Last question about probably the most penetrating piece of journalism that I've seen you write, which is a, a piece called, Is Mask Slipping the New Man Spreading? <laughs> yes, that was one of my great insights, wasn't it? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Explain that. Uh, well, I started to notice that, uh, well, everybody knows what man spreading is, I assume. People sitting on mass transit, and they just have to put their knees essentially like they're doing a split or something so they can take up as many seats <laughs> as possible. And it's quite kind of arrogant and it, it, it sort of captures all the worst of the caricature of uh, male arrogance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to notice when everyone was wearing masks, you know, when it was really hard, well, not everyone, but practically everybody, that a lot of people just would let them fall. They'd be, you know, cover part of their mouth. You saw politicians and other people doing it, even Barack Obama. And, you know, it was all over the place. And, uh, and it seemed to me it was more men than women. So I, I asked the question is, you know, is this the new man spreading? And I have to say, I got very, very nasty emails about that. <laughs> all from men. <laughs> who may have been doing it themselves. Perhaps. Well, it was one of my favorite pieces. You have been writing so many great stories over the years for the Times. We will miss you, but we'll follow your work, and hopefully we'll hear more about dogs. I hope so. James Gorman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. James Gorman, a seasoned science reporter who was with the New York Times for many years until his very recent retirement. He has spent his career writing about animals and viruses and archaeology and the evolution of dogs. A really interesting conversation. I want to thank you for listening today. Please follow The Long Leash in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget, we have a number of shows here at Dog Podcast Network. Here at DPN, we'd love to know what you think. You can do that by visiting our website at longleashshow.com and click on that little blue microphone icon located at the bottom right of every page. And when you do that, you can leave us a voicemail and let us know your thoughts. You can also find us on all the social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Oh, and one last favor that I'd like to ask you before we go today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do us a favor and tell your friends, your dog-loving friends, about The Long Leash and about Dog Podcast Network. That is all for today. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.